It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at PenFed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is September 17th in 2022, and my guest is Sebastian Brunemeyer. Sebastian is the co-founder and general partner at HealthSpan Capital, a venture fund focused on longevity biotech and geoscience. He's also the co-founder and CEO at Immune H Pharma, a drug discovery platform for immune system rejuvenation. He holds positions as an advisor and board member at multiple companies and organizations such as VitaDAO and Molecule. Sebastian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nicholas. Good to be on. Sebastian, what would you like listeners to know about you? I like long walks on the beach and sushi and all of that. But the main thing is Longevity Biotech is a revolution, a medical revolution in the making, equivalent in magnitude or greater to the antibiotics revolution. So about a little over a century ago, it was once unthinkable that there would be a magic pill, a silver bullet you could take that would cure infectious diseases, which were killing most people at the time. And lo and behold, such innovations occurred. And we are now at the cusp of a similar revolution by targeting the fundamental molecular damage that causes aging. And in labs all over the world, it's possible to extend healthy lifespan of mice by about one third through several dozen types of interventions that can be combined for synergy. This is probably the news that I would yell from the rooftops that we need more capital and talent and attention in the longevity biotech space sometimes called long bio. And there have been a couple billion flooding into the space in recent years. So it's nice to see because when I got into the field about 10 years ago, it was very fringe. There were few credible investors in the space and certainly no big pharmas. And now there are a handful of big pharmas keen on the space. How did you transition from academia into business? I am a biomedical scientist by training. I spent many years at the lab bench working on molecular neuroscience, ways of enhancing cognitive function in, in disease, neurodegenerative disease, but also in regular healthy people, nootropics. Then I found out about longevity through the work of Aubrey de Grey, and I basically took a job funded by Aubrey de Grey, and then I continued my education in Europe doing a master's in molecular neuroscience and biotech business management. I worked for a family office in London investing in biotech. And then I was recruited to help launch Apollo Health Ventures, which is today the largest aging-focused venture fund in the world with $200 million under management. They're focused on company building, 
really rock star team. And I was in the PhD program at Oxford between Oxford and the Scripps Research Institute, which is the world's leading drug discovery institute. And I that was going fine. I was working on the biochemistry of aging. But then I was recruited with my co-founder, James, to launch Cambrian Biopharma, which is today one of the larger aging-focused distributed drug discovery companies, what we call a DISCO model, with a top co and then a bunch of subsidiaries. And that company has raised about $160 million in the last two years. And we have very prominent backers and 20 assets in the portfolio. And I would recommend everybody check out Cambrian. And I also, I forgot to mention, I launched another company called Samsara Therapeutics, which has gone on to be pretty successful as well. It's the largest aging or autophagy-focused drug discovery platform company. We have four different lead series molecules in development that enhance autophagy by new mechanisms of action that are mTOR independent. So autophagy is really one of those core longevity geroprotective mechanisms of action. So we did that at Apollo and during part of my PhD, launched Cambrian. And then after a while, I launched Healthspan Capital with a couple of colleagues, Nathan Chang being one of them. And we are investing in longevity biotech therapeutics companies. And I'm also CEO and founder of Immune Age Pharma, which is focused on immune system rejuvenation. It should be apparent from COVID that age is the number one risk factor from death from infectious disease, but also the immune system drives aging across organ systems and tissues from cardiovascular disease, neurodegeneration to you name it. And to my great surprise, I've been in biotech for some years. I thought I had seen a lot of the companies that were in the space. I never saw a single company that was really focused on systematically searching for enhancers, immune system function, rejuvenators of immune function, particularly by targeting the hematopoietic stem cells. It's very well known how to perform bone marrow transplants. And there are many bone marrow transplants, tens of thousands occurring every year. And yet there have been few efforts to try to improve bone marrow transplant efficacy and safety and pretty much no efforts to find those molecules that you can expose these stem cells to ex vivo outside of the body that rejuvenates them. We aim to take a lot of shots on goal and combine different molecules for ex vivo rejuvenation. So that's a bit of a summary of what we're up to. To give a bit of background, why I'm really excited to have you on the show today, Sebastian. Shortly after our conversation, I'll be off to a place called Roatan, a Caribbean island of the country of Honduras. And I got involved with long bio, longevity and biotech because of an entrepreneur named Mac Davis, who has a company called MiniCircle that's developing reversible gene therapies in a place called Prospera, which is a startup city on the island of Roatan with a more flexible regulatory regime that allows him to do clinical trials much faster, much more cost efficiently, and thereby overcome many of the hurdles that we face when it comes to the adoption of longevity and biotech and new drug development. So next week, I'll organize the Prospera Health Tech Summit 2022, September 23 to 25. And we'll be welcoming a group of 20 to 30 entrepreneurs from Central and Latin America and the rest of the world. Some of them are probably also you are familiar with, and they're also from your community. Part of the conference will also be a business pitch competition. I wanted to have you on to have a wide-ranging conversation, what's needed to bring long bio to market, to larger adoption, to larger scale. You're a thought leader in that space. You're uniquely positioned to talk sort of about the investment landscape, the regulatory and policy landscape, and the science. Can you expand a bit more 
what is LongBio? How did it come about and why now? There are some magisterial texts, some tomes written by the author Ilya Stambler on the history of life extensionism. This is not a new thing. Ever since, who was it? The king of Babylon or king of Samaria, Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, humans have been questing for extended healthy lifespan. It's only been the last maybe half century that the revolution in molecular biology and biochemistry allows us to really take a scientific approach to longevity. So the field that's emerged in the last 10, 20 years, longevity biotech or long bio, is gaining a lot of traction in the eyes of investors. We have prominent people supporting us like Peter Thiel has been a supporter for a long time. He's usually early to things. Bob Nelson from Arch Ventures recently backed Altos Labs, which is a $3 billion longevity company. The Google founders created a company called Calico out of Google, which is also around $3 billion in financing. It's partnered with AbbVie, the big pharma. And my friend and colleague, Nathan Chang uh, at Healthspan Capital, runs a website called longevitylist.com. And he keeps track of all of the long bio companies in the space and all of the investors and even job postings. If you want to get a job in the field, check it out, longevitylist.com. And he also has the most subscribed to newsletter in the longevity space, Longevity Market Cap newsletter. And he has been keeping track of the amount of capital coming into the space. And in the last several years, it's been in the billions, excluding some of these whales. It is probably averaging a couple hundred million a year, and it's rising exponentially. We I think we're relatively well positioned at the early stage here. It hasn't really become a meme yet in the way that, say, psychedelics or tech was a meme in the early 2000s or whatever. Yeah, it's a little under the radar still, but the potential is massive because through the history of pharmaceutical drug discovery, it's mostly been symptom palliation. So setting aside antibiotics, most therapies for age-related diseases today do not actually address the root molecular cause of the disease. They just try to palliate the symptoms. So for example, Alzheimer's drugs, they're cholinergic agents or NMDA receptor antagonists. They just enhance cognitive function in the near term. Or cardiovascular drugs like statins or blood pressure meds, they don't address the root cause of vascular aging. One of the companies we invested in, Repair Bio, is actually engineering macrophages to clear out the vascular wall the junk that accumulates in that wall. So that's a little closer to the root cause. So a lot of medicine has been damage control, cutting off the heads of the hydra, the immortal ancient Greek hydra. I don't know if it's immortal. There is something called an immortal hydra. There's a little organism that is actually technically immortal. But the Greek hydra, you cut off its heads and another one grows back. And it's like that with aging and age-related disease as well. Even if we cured cancer, if we cured every single type of cancer tomorrow, imagine. That'd be great for those people who were about to get cancer. But on a population level, it only confers about two or three years of extended population health span. Because aging is an exponential process. If you weren't going to get cancer, you're likely to get cardiovascular disease shortly thereafter, or diabetes, or Alzheimer's, or stroke, or what have you. So really, the only way to extend healthy lifespan across the board is to address the fundamental root molecular cause of aging. And over the last 30 years or so, we have unraveled a lot of how that works. And it's described in typologies like the seven deadly sens developed by Aubrey de Grey and colleagues at the Sens Foundation. A little bit later, this very highly cited paper called The Hallmarks of Aging. It breaks down into nine 
molecular and biochemical processes, what causes the aging process. One of the authors there, I actually co-founded a company with, Greta Keto uh, Cromer, which is Samsara Therapeutics. So anyway, we've made a huge amount of progress as a field in this field called geroscience, understanding what causes aging. And in animals, we can extend their lifespan, healthy lifespan, about 30%. And those interventions can be combined for synergy. And then in the last couple of years, there was a watershed realization of some biology that's been known for a very long time, which is reprogramming, epigenetic reprogramming. So there was a Nobel Prize awarded, I think, in 2012 or 2016 to Shinya Yamanaka. And John Gurdon, I think in the 70s, showed at Cambridge, UK, that you could do somatic cell nuclear transfer. So you could take the nucleus of, of the skin cell from a frog and inject it into a frog embryo, replacing the existing nucleus, and it would create a new frog, a new clone, basically. And you could do that with Dolly the sheep, and you can clone animals like that. Turns out that you can also do that to reset the age of the organism, or at least reset the age of the cell. What Yamanaka showed using this sort of brute force combinatorial approach that you can combine four transcription factors, OSKM, called Yamanaka factors today, and you can take a 100-year-old skin cell from a 100-year-old patient, put it in a dish, treat it with those four genes, and reset the epigenetic clock, the epigenetic age, to a day zero embryo. And so in principle, if you can do that in the whole organism, you can achieve biological immortality. The science is largely solved on that front. It's now an engineering challenge. How do we deliver those genes to enough cells without causing side effects? Because you, if you don't control the expression of those genes carefully, you get teratomas, you get a sort of tumor. There are a lot of groups working on alternative Yamanaka factors that do not have that risk or small molecule cocktails that can do some of that transient reprogramming. The point is cellular immortality is possible. It's been possible for billions of years, actually, since the dawn of life on this planet, or at least sexual reproduction, because there's a cell type in all of our bodies called the germline. So these are the reproductive cells that give rise to the sperm and egg. And when those cells meet, they actually reset their biological age at the moment of conception and grow into a whole organism. And that whole organism or that embryo will actually set aside and reserve some cells to remain that embryonic-like state, the germ cell. And so there's, a, there's an unbroken lineage, the germline, all the way back to the dawn of life on this planet. Anyway, that's, those are just a couple key points about some of the advances that have happened in the geroscience space. It's quite early days, but big pharma is usually slow on the uptake, but there are a handful of pharmas that are catching on to the longevity approach. Not if we're successful, but when ultimately we're successful, drugs that slow aging, pharmaceuticals that are actually good for you are going to disrupt and eat the lunch of the traditional pharma model, which is based on symptom palliation. If we're actually treating the root cause of disease the symptom palliation model will no longer apply. So hopefully that day can come soon, can come quickly for the benefit of everybody. Can you give listeners a sense of, or explain what is decentralized science or DSI? How did it come about? Why now? And how can it help bringing some of these innovations in the science that you described to market? DSI is a new paradigm to discover, disseminate, fund, and execute scientific research without relying on governments, big corporations, or centralized organizations. The on-chain intellectual property resulting from this research can be fractionalized and liquidly traded in a manner more transparent than the current IP market structure. Companies and labs can be financed on-chain via DAOs. 
this decentralized approach mitigates the enforcement of scientific dogma and the perverse incentives in both industry and academia, which have failed in their obligations to public health and scientific progress. You can personally get involved, whether you're a scientist or not, by joining DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organization, to give you one example. One of the groups that I advise is called VitaDAO. They're almost like a decentralized venture fund slash company builder. We have raised about $15 million in the last 16 months or so, and we have deployed it into about 15 different projects, academic, translational research, drug discovery, as well as some biotech company partnerships. VitaDAO is just one of several. It's one of the more advanced but there's another one called LabDAO, which is doing something quite cool, which is basically a cloud lab infrastructure, but enabled by crypto rails. There are three layers in DSI. So there's the Web3 infrastructure layer, layer one, that is groups like Molecule AG in Switzerland, which has established some of the legal templates and precedents, set the industry standards for organizational structure. They built an IP marketplace, like an eBay for IP, so that all pre and post patent data are easily searchable and described in a way that's actually meant to be discovered and licensed, not hidden from view, which is how the obfuscatory patent literature currently works. I was amazed that after some years of doing technology licensing, it's pulling teeth. You go to these university tech transfer offices, you talk to people who don't have skin in the game, and they don't understand the technology. And you have to talk to the professor, but they want you to sign a CDA. And then you have to spend like six months negotiating the licensing terms. And it's 40 page legalese documents. And it's just a mess. So what if there were a eBay for IP, a centralized marketplace where I as a biotech VC or company founder can just Google search autophagy enhancing small molecules or Yamanaka factor memetics or senolytics or, or you name it. And I can find all of the projects pre and post patent, which are either available for licensing or which I can fund. I can write a 250k check and do some early target validation drug discovery work. And that could be the killer experiment that justifies a biotech spin-out or two. So that's part of what Molecule AG is working on. They've raised a fair amount of capital from prominent Web3 VCs, as well as some biotech VCs. North Pond Ventures came in, led the most recent round. So that's layer one, the infrastructure layer. The second layer is the capital allocation layer, kind of like venture funds. VitaDAO, ValleyDAO for synthetic biology, PsyDAO for psychedelics, and Alzheimer's DAO, some rare disease DAOs like Vibe Bio is one. They're similar to venture funds or, or a disco, this distributed drug discovery model, which is like what Cambrian or Bridge Bio are like, but they're more democratic in that every token holder is able to vote on the activities and whether we fund something. There's really a much more granular level of control for the token holders and also transparency. And it's not listed on any like national exchange. So like, for example, I want to buy Evotech stock, right? One of the leading biotech CROs who we've worked with previously. I think they're undervalued right now. But I have a TD Ameritrade equity ac account and I would have to get access to the Hamburg Stock Exchange, which is a pain in the neck. So I'll have to switch. So I don't have to do that with crypto. It's all international. And DAOs are also similarly international organizations. They're not incorporated in any one place. So that allows us to employ people no matter where in the world they are. Like if you want to, if you're a Delaware company and you want to hire somebody in Europe, it's just an insane level of bureaucracy. And so we can basically, in these DAOs, 
have people work as little or as much as they would like. They get paid in tokens, they get paid in fiat, and we have a bounty-based system. And, and so it's pretty clear who's really pulling their weight. And so you can have really prominent people like at VitaDAO, we've got prominent professors and successful biotech entrepreneurs and successful VCs just helping out several hours a week or whatever they can spare. And they receive compensation for doing so. So it's a really more flexible organizational structure. So that's layer two. And then layer three is the final layer of the Web3 DSI infrastructure right now. And this layer is, I think, the most difficult to establish. It, the other ones are already working, but the third one is still wait and see. And I think it's going to work, but it's not fully up and running, which is the physical execution layer and hat tip to Nicholas Rintdorf from LabDAO for this overall framework. The physical execution layer includes groups like LabDAO and various cloud labs like Emerald Cloud Labs or Transcriptic or Arcturus here in Oxford, UK. They perform experiments with a maximum level of automation, use AI to analyze the data and even pr propose new experiments in a closed loop, and then output the data into machine-readable format, and then we can input into an IP NFT, which is like auditable because there's a big issue with reproducibility of scientific data. And then when you're a token holder in that IP NFT, you can actually see the data in real time as it comes out. And that allows price discovery in real time for all of the all of these data packages. And then furthermore, with the LabDAO model, you can provide dynamic pricing as a CRO, a contract research organization, depending on how much demand you have at any given time or the availability of certain people to do certain types of experiments. And you can also create a marketplace like exists on Science Exchange to find new expert CROs for these more specialized experiments. Yeah, I love the three-layer model. You're describing what I've been thinking too, that you're setting up alternative guardrails, right? So first on the legal side, so different legal guardrails, so a different set of IP laws that can work in a more tokenized way, different financial guardrails, tokenization allowed by blockchain allows different ways of funding the science behind it, the entrepreneurs behind it, the companies behind it, the organizations behind it. So that's exactly the alternative you and we're building to the mainstream system. I was a bit surprised by how you described the physical execution layer, because in the end, you also need to develop drugs that people or therapies that people can take in the real world. For sure. Yeah. We can't be digital forever, right? You can't eat bits. So performing these experiments in the real world is where most of the value is generated. And, but just automating it will be a major leap forward. So for example, I spent years at the lab bench, banging my head against the wall, and people more talented and intelligent than myself were just frustrated doing the work that a robot or a monkey could do just as well or better. We should not have intelligent, creative human beings doing rote work, mechanical work, like pipetting and stuff like that. But the reason we do is because of the Ponzi scheme nature of academia, where you have this artificially cheap grad student and postdoc labor pool. Eric Weinstein calls it a cryptic labor market. And it really is. A PhD and a postdoc is a job. You're getting some experience, but you're not really, it's not like you're in school. It's really a job, but it's heavily underpaid. So you have very high IQ, very competent people getting paid half of or a third of what they should be getting in the open market. So that's wrong. And so one way to deal with that is to somehow get people to unionize and, and raise the wages, but that's quite a heavy lift. Another way is just to, to encourage automation and make automation cheaper and basically show that academic PIs can actually get ahead of their competition by using CROs externally. Biotech companies and big pharmas already heavily rely on CROs and automation. For example, when I was doing my master's, it was at the University of Amsterdam, and 
I spent nine months doing tons of Western blots, which are this quite tedious protein biochemistry assay that are like the bread and butter of a lot of biochemistry work. And toward the end of the master's, my lab got a machine that does it automatically. And I was just like, okay, great. I could have gotten what I did in nine months done in two months or less with this machine. And it's just insane that we're doing that, that we're relying on this like labor intensive method, this like workshop based method, artisanal science, rather than just automating and standardize everything. There should be like engineering standards across the entire industry. We perform Western blots in the same way with the same machine. Everybody can audit the data, et cetera. And that will go a, lo a long way toward solving the reproducibility crisis too. I also want to talk about the overlap between crypto community and the longevity community. The crypto and longevity biotech or long bio communities are overlapping sets, perhaps because we're both techno-political movements born of the internet. As Ben Franklin's quip went, Nothing is certain in life except death and taxes. And I guess we're trying to overturn that view. One of the founders of Bitcoin is named Hal Finney. And he is one of the suspects for the true identity of Satoshi Nakamoto. He received the first Bitcoin transaction. He was the first, he was a major longevity enthusiast and also a cryonics enthusiast. Similarly, Vitalik Buterin of Ethereum is a thoughtful supporter of the long bio field. He's been supporting Vita, for example. So the crypto and long bio movements are both inherently radical, futurist, techno-optimistic, and both movements challenge a fundamental assumption in our culture, one, that money should be centralized and subject to government manipulation, and two, that biological aging, disease, and death are immutable. So in the last few decades, as I mentioned, scientists achieved over 30% healthy lifespan extension in mice via various types of interventions that can be combined pharmacological, diet, lifestyle, genetic, etc. So the field is new, but there's a lot of capital flowing in. But the capital is not uh, well distributed. It's overly concentrated in a small number of high profile companies. Uh, one of the things we're hoping to do with Healthspan Capital is distribute the money into the hands of hardcore geroscientists who have strong science, but they are not the kind of like hype-oriented big names that are able to absorb a lot of the capital in any field. One of the ways that blockchain can benefit medicine is it can allow patients to own their own medical data and even profit from it. So for example, a couple of years ago, 23andMe sold their paying customers data to a big pharma called GlaxoSmithKline for about $300 million. If patients own their own data, They'd have a say in whether that transaction occurred and a profit share. Furthermore, hospitals and clinics stubbornly cling to your own, to your medical records, resisting sharing with a new clinic in an effort to try to keep you captive to their business. But with electronic medical records on the blockchain that are interoperable across clinics, they would not be able to keep your data hostage. And you would be able to basically in an anonymized way, rent out your data to anybody who wants to compute on that data. So digitizing and encoding it would allow many researchers and companies to access it, whereas now it's all siloed and locked up. Furthermore, the immutable nature of some blockchains allows clinical trial data to be recorded in a manner that prevents data tampering and selective reporting, which is a major reason why pharmaceuticals prove to be more toxic or less effective than initially promised. So these are just some ideas from a non-crypto native normie like myself, but I'm really excited by them. 
Yeah, I'd like to talk a bit about the problems with the mainstream pharmaceutical uh, or medical system. We've seen lots of progress in the world of bits, but not much in the world of atoms. And just to give an example, we talked in a couple of episodes about Irum's law. Irum's law is basically the reversal of Moore's law. Moore's law has made computing power advance rapidly and made it vastly cheaper to innovate in the digital world and advance sort of the science of computing power that also underpins or should underpin a lot of innovations that you were describing in long bio and in healthcare. But during the same time, new drug development has actually experienced the reverse of Irum's law in terms of the number of new drugs and therapies that have come on the market, while the amount of money that has been poured into it has actually massively increased. Yeah. Where And that's presumably a challenge that you're also facing, right? The companies, the new therapies and drugs that they're developing, they eventually need to clear those hurdles. So can you talk a bit about that? Sure, yeah. So touching on Irum's law, funny you mention it. The person who coined Irum's law is a friend of mine, Jack Scannell, who I actually just interviewed on my forthcoming Healthspan Capital podcast. He's got a paper coming out of Nature Reviews Drug Discovery soon, that diagnoses one of the main problems with pharma, which is that the animal models of disease are unrealistic, contrived garbage, basically. But some years ago, I think it was 2012, he and others, colleagues from BCG, coined this idea, E-Room's Law, there's a Wikipedia page on it, that is the inverse productivity of Moore's Law. So Gordon Moore observed that every 16 months, semiconductor processing power doubled. We get the opposite of that with big pharma. So it's getting exponentially more expensive to get a new drug approved despite massive improvements in computational power and all of the tools that we're using for drug discovery. And, okay, so there, there are many explanations for Irum's law. It's hard to know which one really accounts for it, and it's probably overdetermined anyway. But the main one, according to Jack Scannell, is that the animal models of disease are contrived. Geigo, garbage in, garbage out. So you have these animal models like the Mouseheimer's model. So you take a mouse and you have it expressed four times the normal amount of amyloid beta, this protein that accumulates in brains of people with some types of Alzheimer's. And then you try to clear that from the brain. And lo and behold, yeah, you can cure that animal model, but that's not really what's happening in the humans. And so the industry over decades has wasted billions and billions in academia too on the amyloid hypothesis, this view that amyloid beta is the upstream apical driver of Alzheimer's disease. And there have been so many high profile failures that the Alzheimer's field is finally moving away from that dogma. And so this happens in most areas. And Jack Scannell points out that when you have a really good animal model of disease or a cellular model of disease, it results in effective therapies in short order. So for example, there was an advancement in the way we grow hepatitis C in cells, these uh, viral replicons. And as shortly after that method was created, we got really effective antivirals for hep C that effectively cure the disease like Solvaldi from Gilead. And so there's this adverse selection process where when you have a really good animal model of disease like blood pressure or antibiotic infectious disease or whatever, we get effective drugs for it. And then people stop using that animal model because it's a pseudo solved problem. But the only animal models that stick around are the ones that have not yielded any effective drugs. And people just keep turning the crank, banging their head against the wall with that same non-functional model, similar with fibrotic diseases and like bleomycin injection or something. So that's Scannell's take. But I actually independently 
came to that conclusion as many others have, but there's more to it than that. There's also perverse incentives in the industry. Big Pharma has been cartelizing. Big Pharma has been acquiring and merging, gobbling each other up for decades. There used to be like 50 Big Pharmas, now they're like less than 20. And they get fat and happy and bureaucratic, and they basically charge really high drug prices as a way to compensate for the fact that their internal R&D is ineffective. They say, they reverse the argument when talking to the government and the public. They say, oh, we need to charge such extortionate prices because it's so expensive to do drug discovery and development. But if they were just better at it and they would have a higher success rate, then you wouldn't need to charge so much money for it. So it's a chicken or egg sort of problem. And so pharma... (laughs) Pharma puts out these numbers from like an industry-aligned think tank at Tufts, Joe DeMazzi's group, where they estimate that it costs a billion dollars to get a new drug approved or latest number like $2.3 billion or whatever. And if you see how they calculate that, first of all, half of that is the cost of capital, like accumulated over a 10-year period, an RNPV type model. Okay. And then the other component is they just calculate say, Novartis's or Pfizer's annual R&D spend or on a 10-year basis R&D spend, and then divided by the number of drugs that they manage to get. Let's say you spend $10 billion a year and you get 10 drugs approved. It's a billion dollars per drug. But that doesn't tell you what it costs, what it should cost to get a drug approved. That just tells you how much money you're spending on it. How efficient are you at it? And if you actually look at the numbers of what clinical trials cost in preclinical development, like data coming out of Andrew Lowe's group or coming out of the NIH Health and Human Services, depending on the clinical indication, it's 50 million, maybe 100 million all in to approval for most indications. And for rare genetic diseases, it's even less. So their failure rate is 10 to 1, um, 90% failure rate on average across therapeutic areas. And actually, ironically, the lowest success rate across therapeutic areas is oncology. So the hardest area to get a drug approved, an effective drug, is on oncology, which is stunning because industry spends about 50% of all R&D budget on oncology, even though oncology is not the leading cause of death. By far, it's cardiovascular, cardiometabolic disease. And the other amazing thing is the bar, the standards that they're held to, to get an approval in oncology are actually really low. You don't need to extend healthy lifespan for very long. Maybe a couple months is approvable. You can get a conditional approval based on partial response, like shrinking a tumor. You don't even need to extend the lifespan of the patient. And furthermore, side effects are very well accepted because it's seen as a very acute life-threatening disease. If you add the kind of side effects that you have for a chemo drug, for a cardiovascular drug or diabetes drug, there's no way in hell that would work. These chemotherapy drugs, they're accelerating the pace of aging. They do DNA damage, right? So even though everything is stacked in favor of getting chemo drugs approved, oncology drugs approved, it's still only like a 5% approval rate from phase one, starting from phase one all the way to approval. So anyway, these are some of the things in the pharmaceutical industry that are unfortunate, but there is good news. And then I haven't even touched on the incredible levels of corruption. There's just too much money in the sector and it's being run by the kind of people who run all other big corporations. So we'll leave it at that so I don't get into trouble. But basically, 
There's some good news, though, which is data from a professor at MIT called Andrew Lowe, who helped initiate the whole business model organizational structure called the DISCO, Distributed Drug Discovery Company, and helped launch this company called BridgeBio, which is at its peak worth a billion. It's like this large multi-asset company focused on rare genetic diseases. Andrew Lowe has accumulated data on clinical trial success rates as a function of time. And he's shown that in the last three or four years, clinical trial success rates across all therapeutic areas has tripled. It's tripled, which is insanely good news and in some ways justifies the bubblicious valuations we see in the public and, and private markets. They've crashed recently, but I think it's an incredible generational buying opportunity actually in biotech. And so if you ask Andrew Lowe, and he's given a couple talks, including here at Oxford, why this is happening. He attributes it to more academic drug discovery and biotech spinouts, which have a better incentive structure than big pharma. So with a biotech company or any startup, you've always got to ask the question, how is it possible that this underfunded ragtag group, disorganized company is able to time and time again, outperform big established incumbent organizations? These organizations have, it's like, what is it that that book, Innovator's Dilemma? They have all of the resources you can imagine. They have a low cost of capital. They have all of the expertise, all the credibility, anything you can want. And they're always caught flat-footed like dinosaurs. To give you an example, there's this great documentary that everybody should see. It's called Breakthrough about Jim Allison, the Nobel Prize winning immune oncology researcher in Texas. And he spent a decade trying to get pharma's attention around checkpoint inhibitors, CTLA-4 antibodies. And they didn't care, they didn't care, they didn't care. And then they showed that this mechanism of action can revolutionize immune oncology like the PD-1 checkpoint inhibitors do. And then the company was acquired for billions. So pharma is, tends to be slow in the uptake here. And to their credit, they're outsourcing R&D. So they're not doing internal R&D anymore much. They're mostly just acquiring biotech startups, which is great for people like us who launch and invest in these kind of companies. But it's actually bad for society because the money that they make, they spend on marketing mostly. So the R&D budget is usually one half or less than what they spend on marketing per dollar of revenue. So Novartis and Roche are the most innovative, spending 15% of revenue on R&D, but they spend double 30% on marketing. Pfizer, the American big pharma, spends 3% of revenue on R&D. And the funny thing is most of that R&D is actually D. It's late stage clinical trials. It's not even science. Over the years, had this sort of startling, chilling realization that there are no adults in the room. Nobody's doing industry research, really, it, which is in a sense good because it leaves a lot on the table for people like us to launch these companies. But we can only do so much. And there are only a couple thousand probably in the world qualified biotech founders out there who can do real bona fide drug discovery and development and maybe less than 50 company building biotech VCs. So there's this accumulation of assets and interesting targets and mechanisms sitting on the shelf in academia all over the world. And most universities are massively underventured too. So you have the Boston and San Francisco and San Diego ecosystems, but pretty much everybody else is really not getting enough attention from pharma. So a friend of mine worked in Pfizer's search and evaluation group. And I asked her, how many people are there for all of North America doing search and evaluation for Pfizer, a country of 300 million people plus Canada? And the answer is 12. 
12 people to cover all of the universities in the United States, right? From one of the biggest big pharmas out there. It's just ridiculous. Anyway, these are some of the things going on in, in big pharma. There's bad news, but there's also good news. And I think there there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think we're moving toward a world in which innovation is in the place where it should be, which is this distributed system, whether it's decentralized by crypto and Web3 in the early stages or just a whole lot of small biotechs. So I'm pretty optimistic about organizational structures, and I'm very optimistic about the actual science and the drug discovery modalities. For most, for about a century, most of pharma was just small molecules, medicinal chemistry, mostly natural product derived or started with the chemical dyes industry in 1850s Germany. But now we have biologics, the biotech revolution in the 80s and 90s. We have gene therapies, RNA therapies, cell therapies. And I predict that once we can solve the gene therapy delivery problem, we will be in an absolutely new world for biology, enhancing cognitive function and everybody looking Arnold Schwarzenegger and pretty incredible stuff that we see in the animals already. But we can make the animals a lot smarter. We can make them super muscular with myostatin modification, but we just can't really deliver these genes to enough cells in the human body and then control them carefully. And right now, most gene therapy is AAV-mediated delivery, but the AAVs are toxic and they're very expensive to manufacture. So I'm really bullish on non-viral vector technologies like Entos Pharma, for example. Yeah, there was a new fact to me that the number of one to two point billion dollars in cost for drug approval seems to be like an inflated number. Oh yeah, the deliberately inflated number by Big Pharma. And I learned from you from from your presentations that for biotech startups or companies they're potentially facing five to 10x lower cost to bring a drug to market, which is very encouraging. However, I have a bit of a bias because I still see a couple of problems there on the regulatory and the governance side, like for example, the timeline. So it still takes very long. And so I see the problem very strongly with the incentives, you know, with the public choice incentives set by the FDA. And also I had a super interesting episode with Jessica Flanagan, who was questioning the moral assumptions of why do we have a regulator that can say yes and no, have a prohibitive approach instead of something like a certificatory approach that would allow insurances, for example, to play a much larger role in assessing the risk and basically also be more morally apt when, it, when you apply my body, my choice ethics. And also as a result of the long timelines and also, which we haven't discussed yet, the IP and patent side of things, Big Pharma can basically sit back and say, oh, I'm going to buy all these companies, I'm going to have strong patents on them. I'm going to be protected for a long time and I can focus on what I'm the strongest in, which is supply chain and distribution, which is an area where it's extremely hard for small startups to compete. It is an area where scale efficiency and low cost of capital matters. I totally buy that there's many signs for optimism, but at the same time, I see a large problem still that we need to overcome on sort of the IP and patent side and on the regulatory side and getting faster approval times. So what do you see as, what do you see, if you want to challenge some of the points I made, or how can we come to a situation where startups can become big pharma companies and not be bought by big pharma companies? Yeah, this is, this is a point that's close to my heart because this is what we're doing with Cambrian Biopharma. 
I'm happy for Big Pharma to focus on marketing and putting the pills in the little packages and all of that sort of stuff that puts me to sleep. Fine. There are economies of scale to that, but it's not the kind of business that needs like hardcore iconoclastic innovator risk taker types, right? So partitioning the late stage stuff, even late stage clinical trials from the actual research where you need independent thinking type people, I think is a good idea. <clears throat> so I envision a world, and we're already in this world to some extent, where big pharma transitions to basically being private equity funds with marketing shops attached and regulatory shops. So they acquire companies once you have compelling phase two data, and then they do the large scale uh, phase three studies and get regulatory approval and then do marketing and distribution. They're really good at all of that, actually. They're just not good at the early stage stuff, which is involves taking risk. Because when you're at a big pharma company, you don't want to take any risk. You don't have any skin in the game. You don't have any substantial equity in the company. If you have equity in Novartis as a chemist, who cares? You're not going to move the needle in Novartis equity. Back in the day, actually, chemists used to be co-owners in the intellectual property. They used to own the patents. They used to get royalties directly from the drugs they made. And that was back in the golden era of big pharma, mid last century. So bringing that back is a good idea, but big pharma just doesn't see a need to do it, even though they really would probably benefit from it. I'm a big believer in skin in the game. And this is why when we conceived of the DISCO model, like for example, Cambrian, it's a top co with subsidiaries. And those subsidiaries have management teams that have direct skin in the game via equity. And they have a lot of autonomy too. So decentralizing decision-making power. This is one of the ways in which big pharma fails because it's so bureaucratic, you got to go through many layers of management to get even a little thing done. So the, I envision a day when Big Pharma is doing the boring late stage stuff. And then you have these disco type companies that are at a sufficient scale to have the benefits of a mid-sized biopharma without as much bureaucracy. So for example, how things happen today is there will be an academic with some kind of scientific advance or a drug-like molecule and they spin out a company. Sometimes they just license it to big pharma where it gets buried and then the patent expires and then it's lost to history forever, which is a huge shame because we're basically just taking a torch to the corpus of scientific innovation. Because after a couple of years, if IP is not licensed or advanced into the clinic, it goes stale and nobody can ever do anything with it again in the future. This is one of the downsides to the patent system. There's a book called Against Intellectual Monopoly by Federal Reserve economist Bulger and Levine, that one arguing that actually patents hold back innovation more than they incentivize it. That's beyond my pay grade, but I'm amenable to that argument. So anyway, so how biotech spinouts work, academic has some breakthrough, and hopefully there's some kind of biotech entrepreneur in the neighborhood or affiliated with the university or a biotech building venture fund who is aware of that work and does some killer experiments, maybe they validate and then they spin out a company. They seed finance it with a couple million bucks and they do some more killer experiments and and then go from there. Those tend to be single asset companies, what I call SNACs, S-N-A-C, single novel asset company. It's an efficient way to do drug discovery, but it's not very attractive as a biotech founder or as an investor because it's a binary bet. And if you're going to spend five years plus of your career in life betting on something, it's just very risky. And it doesn't matter how competent you are in the field or how good the science or whatever it's still a binary option, right? So a lot of really talented people don't want to leave their cushy jobs in big pharma or big biotech to do a snack type project. 
and kudos to those who do because they're really risk-loving people and they deserve every penny of the success that they are met with. But there's another model, which is a platform company. And platform companies are good and bad. Platform companies are good because they can take multiple shots on goal. And when it's a really innovative platform technology, like for example, Ben Kravatz spin out Vividion out of scripts, which is activity-based protein profiling. So that one was acquired by some big pharma recently for over a billion after a year or two out of spinning out. So that's like a bona fide platform company with a really cool technology that can take multiple shots on goal. But a lot of companies that position themselves as platform companies are not really platforms. They're just like going after a certain area of drug discovery or a certain area of biology. During Bubblicious times, platform companies raise a lot of capital because VCs love that potential 100x plus return. And they don't want to have to shut down a company if their lead program fails. So if you can take multiple shots on goal, you can have a platform company that gets in the clinic, you can IPO it, and you can get out before really reading out, turning over the cards on the clinical pipeline. Platform companies got overwrought. They were over overbought over the bubblicious period the last few years, but they're a valid model to go. And they attract talent because you're taking multiple shots on goal. It's perceived as less risky. When in reality, though, they're only maybe one third less risky than a snack because your investors will really only give you three clinical shots on goal before they'll pull the plug on your platform. So any platform company is only as ever as good as its pipeline ultimately. And then there's a third, there's actually four models now. There's the Dow model, which I mentioned. It's kind of like a decentralized version of the Disco. And then the Disco, which I mentioned previously, but basically you have a top code that raises the capital that becomes a bigger and bigger, more prominent organization, attracting better talent and large team. So it lowers the cost of capital. And then you can IPO the Topco, further lowering your cost of capital. If you have any revenue or near-term sort of potential drugs on the market, you can even issue debt, issue bonds, further lowering your cost of capital. Andrew Lowe pioneered some of this work with the Cancer Megafund model that became the basis for BridgeBio. And then at the Topco level, you have like central services. You have pharmacology, toxicology, medicinal chemistry, regulatory strategy, accounting, HR, blah, blah, blah. All of that stuff that can then be used for multiple subsidiary companies. Cambrian has about 20 right now. There's another Juvenescence that has a bunch of subsidiaries in the longevity space as well. And so that saves a lot of time and effort, right? Because if you're a biotech founder, you don't want to have to set up your own HR capability every time you do it and all of that. And then you already have experts, drug hunters who are on board who can basically help manage three plus different companies at a time, right? Because one single snack is not going to occupy them full time, but three or five of them will. And then they have skin in the game in the sense that they get equity in each of the subsidiaries. So they really care, but they're also distributed in a portfolio of maybe three to five subsidiaries every several year period. And it gives you the incentive, importantly to do a clean kill for projects that are not working. So Bruce Booth at Atlas Venture has used the term truth-seeking behavior. There's a really perverse incentive in big pharma, but also in biotechs to continue to advance a program when you shouldn't. Because your whole reputation is tied up in it. Maybe subconsciously, you know that the data aren't that strong, or you're not doing that killer experiment that you should do because you don't want to kill the company. You want to give it a chance. And in big pharma, you get your bonus based on how many molecules you advance to the next phase of development. That causes garbage to flow upstream when it shouldn't, and people are not as critical as they should be. And so if you have multiple shots on goal, and if the project fails, you can honorably come back and do it again. 
And so I think that solves a lot of the incentive problems in big pharma and everything's about incentives. I'm optimistic about those new developments. And there have been several dozen disco model companies inside and outside of the longevity space that have met with a fair amount of success. What do we need more entrepreneurs to work on? Not only necessarily on the scientific or business side, but also on the policy side, what changes would need to happen? I'll comment on what I call the Manhattan Project for Longevity and also the network state community that we want to build in Puerto Rico and elsewhere. Firstly, there is this concept called the Manhattan Project for Longevity. Unfortunately, we're seeing governments getting into this. So there's a H that Biden administration is talking about. We'll try to funnel as much of that into longevity as possible. But the problem is you have these fiefdoms, you have these areas of science where people are going to try to scramble to get that into their pet area that has been failing for many years, right? Keep banging your head against the same approach to targeted mutation drugging targeted mutations in oncology or something like that. So there's going to be this like grab for non-innovative stuff, any pool of capital. We're going to be a bunch of like non-radical dogma-based groups trying to get the money. But anyway, so there is support from governments to do something radical. The Saudi government has committed headline number of a billion a year to longevity biotech through Evolution Foundation. And this is a mandate from on high from MBS himself, the crown prince. But going back to the Manhattan Project, Most of your listeners will be aware of this, but in the 40s, on a five-year period of time, the government, U.S. government invested inflation adjusted, I think, like 30 or 40 billion into this race to develop the nuclear bomb. And they got the best minds that they could all around the table, like John von Neumann type people, and they cracked the problem in just a couple of years. And it was had hundreds of thousands of people working in these places like the various national labs. And I think we should do something similar for longevity because we all face death and decrepitude. Nothing is guaranteed other than the fact that you will suffer at least one age-related disease for probably decades, and it's just a slow decline. I remember 10 years ago, I was cognitively sharper with more physical energy than I have today, and I'm just starting to feel it in aches and pains. So it's just going to get worse. It's just all downhill from here. So we should be treating this as, as life-threatening. And... I'm not worried about terrorists. I'm not worried about China. China, as our president would say, I'm worried about disease, right? And and obesity and diabetes is actually, I would say, the greatest threat to national security in the United States, right? The diabetes rate is like going to double in the next couple of decades or whatever. And this is empire collapsing level problem that our Medicare, our healthcare system is already like 18% of GDP, and it's just going to rise from here as the population ages. So we need a Manhattan Project for aging and for biomedicine. I would say by the end of this century, human healthy lifespan will be multiplied, if not infinite, depending on what we do over the next decade or two. This pace of progress is exponential, but not nearly fast enough. You can make a difference by helping us to mobilize a political movement which galvanizes capital and talent into the field, equivalent to a medical Manhattan project, winning the race to split the atom, turn the tide in World War II, and it was an existential threat to the Axis and allied powers. But now we all face aging and death, which will be guaranteed to 100% of us. And it doesn't matter how rich you get. I don't care how many Lambos you get. Even with the perfect diet and lifestyle, you can probably slow your pace of aging by 30%. And I look at all these billionaires out there, like credit to Bezos or the Google guys and and, uh, and Armstrong from Coinbase and, and Sam Altman, et cetera, for investing in longevity. But if I were a billionaire or a centi-billionaire, I would put 99% of my money into long bio. 
because you're not going to spend the rest of it. And what are you going to spend it on anyway? How many Lambos or how many of those like present presently pleasurable consumption items are you going to buy? You need a long lead time. You need some decades to get the stuff that's science fiction today to be ready for you by the time you're starting to become decrepit. So that's something that I just don't understand why these billionaires are investing in anything other than longevity, right? If they're rational actors, they should be putting as much capital as they can into it. And I think at some point there will be some kind of realization once it becomes a meme. If there's one thing that I've learned over the years, it's that humans are making rational decisions based on data. We have all of these biases. We have this blind spot about the fact that death is coming for everybody and decrepitude. And so things have to become a meme for people to act on it. It's not that showing them data or showing them evidence or making cogent arguments is going to do it. It's got to be a thing because of the mimetic nature of humanity. Monkey see, monkey do. We need to make it like a political movement. We need to make it almost like climate change. Because actually, I worry much more about death and aging than climate change. Climate change, we can probably handle. There can be technological innovations that are technically possible today, renewable energy and sequestration or fusion or what have you. It's just a political problem. And we can mitigate that even in the worst case scenario with climate change, like we can move to different places or we can we can handle that. But we're guaranteed to die from aging and to suffer from it for decades. We're guaranteed. There's no like debate, scientific debate about, oh, is it one one degree or two degrees? If this is This has been happening for literally billions of years. And unless we do something about it, we're in trouble. And for those who are not biological immortalists, we should have the right to decide if and when we die. And there are a lot of societal benefits to that too, right? Imagine if Nikola Tesla or Einstein or von Neumann had another 50 years of productive, cognitively productive life. Because knowledge is like exponential and builds upon it, where would we be technologically if these people didn't pass on? So there are a lot of reasons to do that, as well as economic reasons, because older people can't work, they're not as productive, they take a lot out of the system, we've got the demographic aging silver tsunami, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. A lot of other reasons for it. But there's also just the moral reason that we should make death and infirmity optional. I don't think anyone will choose the option when given the option, but people just don't know that biological immortality is already physically possible. And we just have this engineering challenge to face. So anyway, that's my sermon. <laughs> I would also add what you mentioned, skin in the game. So you had for a very long time, economists and scholars that were criticizing centralized money the Federal Reserve System. There's many more people that have skin in the game in the Federal Reserve System and everyone that benefits from it than sort of economists or scholars who criticize it, of which there are probably a couple of handful who could as well talk about or write about something else, even if their arguments are correct. But now with blockchain, with crypto, and we might talk a little bit about that more with network states, we just create the space for a much larger movement of people that have skin in the game, right? Now there's money behind the argument against centralized money, against centralized science, and against centralized regulatory obstacles when it comes to drug development. The network state idea of developing different legal guardrails around new moral innovations, I'm also very highly attracted to that idea. I'm trying to realize that idea in the physical space. I think startup cities that have physical space like Prospera and others can be to connective tissue between the new financial and legal guardrails we're building and the real world. So we can bring us some of these sci-fi innovations to market there much faster, be it drones, be it robotics or drug development. Many of the regulations are plain unnecessary and you can cut a lot of the slack. And you can also have just a different 
legal system when it comes to liability, an approach where you're held liable for damages you cause instead of trying to put all sorts of mechanisms in place to prevent you from doing something bad in the first place. So any comment on your side when it comes to network states? Yeah, absolutely. Some years ago, I said I would not have much faith in the future of humanity if not for the internet, that series of tubes that is our salvation. And just the same with crypto. So I was actually a Austrian economics nerd in, in undergrad. I used to write for the Center for Stateless Society, this anarchist left market anarchist think tank. Check them out, C4SS. And when crypto came around, I was skeptical. I just thought it was another bubble and I didn't understand it. And God, I wish I <laughs> wish I'd invested. Anyway, and so I see now that with the crypto rails, the Web3 infrastructure, we can actually do a lot in a permissionless way without requiring governments, which are basically the handmaidens of industry and politically collect connected elites to prevent innovation, prevent and forestall competition, right? Like I'd say that's probably the main function of the modern state is to protect the elite interests, enforcing the IP, enforcing government money, preventing competition, etc. Speaking about network state idea, so there's this Great book, Balaji Srinivasan, former CTO of Coinbase, now a polymath. I'm always impressed by just how genuinely intelligent that guy is about coordinating outside of the normal sort of national boundaries facilitated by crypto. And eventually people are going to want to materialize in a physical place. So crypto was able to take off because of the internet, because people, like-minded people could get together and say, hey, I'm not the only one who sees a problem with the system. Same with DeSci. There's so many academics who are just so fed up and depressed with the academic system and with pharma and drug discovery in general, and the whole medical system, which is just morally decayed, who want some alternative. And so you can create these communities on Discord and on crypto, whatever. And But eventually, there's really some synergy to materializing in a physical place, right? Like cities, there's something special about cities economically. And one of the ideas that we have, it's early stage, but we're working on this, is setting up some longevity biotech hubs, some physical places distributed throughout the world where people can go to hang out with like-minded people for whatever period of time you want. So one of the ideas we're working on with my colleagues, Nathan Chang and Adam Grease is a longevity hub, what we call longevity nexus, probably the first one in Puerto Rico, which is not far from you guys in Prospera. And why Puerto Rico? First of all, I live in Puerto Rico. It's beautiful weather. I'll come down for the winters. And there are a lot of crypto people there already, a lot of independently thinking iconoclastic thinkers there, a lot of investors. And the reason for that is because the Puerto Rico government is a territory, not a state of the United States. So it sets its own tax policy because it's not represented in Congress. And so in response to some shenanigans by the federal government, leaving them adrift in the Caribbean Ocean without economic support, the Puerto Rican government said, all right, we need to take matters into our own hands. And they got hit by this hurricane and just a lot of trouble in the removal of certain federal supports some subsidies that kept a lot of industry there. They said, all right, we need a new economic plan. So they basically set up a very favorable tax deal for U.S. citizens where you sign up for Act 60 and you pay effectively 0% capital gains tax, 0% dividend, 0% interest, and crypto is not taxed. And you can basically the top end income tax is like 33%. So it's favorable from a tax perspective. People who've been moving to greener pastures for reasons of tax for millennia, plus the good weather. And the vibe there is quite cool. It's like San Francisco in the 70s or 80s, where you have a lot of psychedelic taking independent thinkers, company founders and investors willing to do something new and innovative. It's not sclerotic. It's, it really feels iconoclastic. 
and you've got great weather, you've got low taxes, and it's the only place in the world that a U.S. citizen or only place in the universe, even if I move to the moon or to Mars, the U.S. government would still tax you at the federal level, no matter where in the world you live, unless you renounce your U.S. citizenship and they're making it difficult, increasingly difficult to do. So Puerto Rico is an option there. And then furthermore, for biotech or for R&D in general, there are two other aspects of the tax policy that are really helpful. One is the Export Services Act. So if you export your services as a consultant outside of the island, like to the mainland US or elsewhere in the world, let's say you're a graphic designer, or you're a programmer, or you're a podcast host, or you're an investor or whatever, and you're making money from clients abroad, you're taxed at 4%, flat tax at 4%, which is very attractive. So a lot of law firms have moved there, a lot of just digital nomads move there. And it's created a mini property bubble, unfortunately. We need to build more there. But the other thing that really excites me, and many people know about the things I just told you about, but few people, including myself, know about the following. And I learned about this when I was already there, and I made friends with one of the government officials who created the Act 60 program, Alberto Baco, who's awesome, is that there's a 50% R&D cashback tax credit. It applies to software R&D, but it also applies to biotech R&D. So if I spend a million dollars in R&D, I get 500 grand back at the end of the year. This is the best subsidy that I'm aware of in the world. UK is 20%, Canada 20%, Australia 30%, but there are all these caveats. This is just no strings attached. You get a tax credit that you can resell to other revenue generating businesses in the island. At the end of the year, you get the money back for 90 something cents on the dollar. And the government there is really keen to bring innovation. It wants to be the Singapore of the Caribbean. and and so they will be flexible to do deals with, say, we want to set up a biotech incubator and we want some venture funds to really focus on the Puerto Rico ecosystem. We can do a bespoke deal with the government where maybe we get even more than 50% credit for a certain number of years, or they have a hard to recruit professionals aspect, which is doctors and engineers and people like that pay 0% income tax for five years. So we could do something like that. So the point is they're flexible. They're willing to accommodate the needs of startup industry and investors to bring more talent and revitalize the island. So I'm a big supporter. I don't get paid to, to uh, pitch Puerto Rico, <laughs> people think so. And I want to get LabDAO to set up uh, one of their facilities down there and set up a biotech incubator. So all of that comes together to make Puerto Rico a really attractive place for one of these longevity network states. And then we want to set one up in Europe too, because Europeans can only spend a certain amount of time in the US technically. So we're looking at Zug, Switzerland, we're looking at Portugal, it remains to be determined where that will be. And it'll start simple. It'll be a couple dozen people get together, rent a couple houses near each other and just hang out and have people in for invited lectures and just riff. But longer term, the vision is we want to create a little longevity university, a college where you can get trained in three to six month courses and get a certification for what you need to know to be a longevity biotech founder or drug discovery person, any anything like that. And then there's an even more ambitious plan led by friends of mine like Adam Gries, who would like to do this within the United States, a US state like Vermont. If we could just move a bunch of people to Vermont, then we could elect a political party like a longevity party or a science and medicine political party. And then we would be able to influence the state legislature and then allocate more capital to longevity and to just becoming a major hub for that kind of thing. Kind of like the case study of the Mormons, right? The Mormons lived in, I don't know, Ohio or something, but then they were driven out because of political or religious xenophobia. And they all went to Utah, the new Zion promised land. And then they became very wealthy and they just kept reinvesting their capital in this evergreen structure into building the Mormon 
world. And now they're major investors. You got Mitt Romney and the Mormons have a lot of political power and economic power too. And so if we could do the same thing where we kept everybody in good health and we had the best concierge longevity medical clinics that were available in the United States, and we just had all of the longevity talent and capital coming to one Mecca, I think that would be really awesome. So that's a long-term program. That's a five, 10-year political program, but we've got to start somewhere. So anyway, come down to Puerto Rico in the winter and we'll do like a longevity investment and biotech founders week. So yeah, stay tuned for that, the longevity nexus and get in touch with Nathan Chang or Adam Grease. I love it, man. Like you, in episode seven of this podcast, I talked to Tom W. Bell, who's the architect of sort of the legal systems behind network states, including Prosper and the Catawba Digital Economic Zone. And when it really dawned on me how changing the legal guardrails of network states has this enormous power to set free this wave of innovation, which is why I started a VC fund in the first place, because I see this accelerating power that these better legal guardrails can have for technology companies. And there's something that Tom said that resonated with me a lot is what if we could potentiate that power similar to how the internet does by networking these different nodes, these different network states, like including the community that you're building in Puerto Rico, Prospera, the Catawba Zone, the Talent City in Nigeria, and multiple others to benefit and learn from each other. So this is the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing and the movement I want to help supercharge. So I'm very happy to learn so much from you and that who's also part of that movement and advancing the frontiers of science, of longevity, of bio. Is there anything else, Sebastian, that you want to let the audience know before they leave? Who should approach you? What are you and your companies looking for right now? Sure. Yeah. Cheers. So Healthspan Capital is raising its next fund. Get in touch if you're interested in learning more. Immune Age Pharma is the round is pretty much closed, but if you're very well-connected person and your value adding beyond just the money, get in touch, join VitaDAO, join Molecule AG. You can work remotely from anywhere. If you're a longevity scientist, submit an application to the Longevity Prize. We give out cash grants for good ideas in the longevity space. Get involved in the DSI ecosystem. You can do that part-time as a consultant and you can make cash or tokens doing come down to Puerto Rico. And yeah, if you're an immunologist or a drug hunter or a medicinal chemist or pharmacologist or something like that, and you want a job in the longevity biotech space, reach out to me on LinkedIn because our portfolio companies are always hiring. And yeah, would love to would love to have you guys part of the community. Awesome. Sebastian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Nicholas, for having me. And I love your podcast. You've got a great lineup. And I saw Michael Gibson was there. I spoke to him this morning. And just the caliber of people you already have in the podcast are impressive. So I'm honored to be among that pantheon. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.